Strange About Star Wars is presented by State Farm. You know those days when it feels like problems just pop out of nowhere? Oh, the helpful folks at State Farm do. Like a fender bender when you're already late. Or a thief breaking into your home, making off with your new flat screen TV or your darling little baby Yoda. Oh my God. Uh, Luckily, there are more than 19,000 agents who are there for you. Because when it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are ready to help. Find an agent today at statefarm.com. Is there another way out? No, that's it. What about the sewers? Sewers? I've warned you before, but Bingebot contains adult content and spoilers, but really quite a bit of adult content. (gasps) Sewers are good. Checking for access points. And now binge mode. Listen, you're not going anywhere. We need you. Let's just come up with it. Please tell me the child will be safe in your care. If you do so, I can default to my secondary command. But you'll be destroyed. And you will live. And I will have served my purpose. No. We need you. There's nothing to be sad about. I've never been alive. I'm not sad. Yes, you are. I'm a nurse droid. I've analyzed your voice. And welcome to Binge Mode Star Wars, proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, Editor-in-Chief of TheRinger.com. Oh, what a great website. It's fabulous. Join me today, now that he's annihilated the scout troopers who dared to harm little baby Yoda. This is so troubling. <sighs> it's Ringer Senior Creative, your Jedi Master, Jason Concepcion. Mal, I am this child's nest droid. And this is Binge Mode Star Wars. We're exploring the wider Star Wars universe from the Skywalker Saga films to the anthology films to the Mandalorian plus numerous other facets of a galaxy far, far away. Please make the journey to Mandalore with us by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review us. Give us the five-star ratings! Or we will unleash this e-web cannon, which has an extremely explosive battery. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, aka the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is only for binge mode fans and which is an excellent place to brainstorm your own signet. Yes. Please head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our binge mode merch. It'll fit perfectly under your rising phoenix. Just call it a jetpack. <laughs> Last time on binge mode, we dove deep, deep into the rise of Skywalker. And then into your Rise of Skywalker questions. And today we're diving deep again. Deep again. Into the Mandalorian season one finale, the utterly mesmerizing chapter eight, Redemption. What a thrill. So fucking good. As always, spoiler warning. While we know nothing about the future of the Mandalorian, we will be going deep on details from this episode and the whole season to date and the entire Star Wars saga to date. Take an official canon and legends, hashtag not canon, into account. So make your way down the river and across the plains because it's time to head to the Lava Flats. Mal? Mm. 
If you're asking if you can trust me, you cannot. Mm, thought so. But you can trust the plot points. <laughs> so let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happens in the season one finale of The Mandalorian by heading to a podcast studio far, far away and queuing up the opening crawl. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. A delightful finale. On Navarro, moments after the end of chapter seven, the two scout troopers who murdered Queel and would have been murdered by us had IG-11 not intervened, speed to their rendezvous point. This is just awful. I loved, loved, loved this finale. I cannot ever watch these four to five minutes again. I just can't. It's too painful. It's very tough. It makes me feel physically ill. Also, how many shots to hit Quill to shoot him off the back of the Blurg? Was it like 50? <laughs> I mean, given what we see from their target practice in this episode, at least. Here, the one carrying Baby Yoda is hideously abusive toward him, punches him twice. The other, curious about the asset. And eventually, after some small talk about Gideon killing his own troops, these <laughs> troopers open the sack to make sure that Baby Yoda is still alive. And Baby Yoda promptly bites the second trooper's finger. Good work, LBY. And then that trooper punches the sack harder than either of the prior two punches. It is disgusting, vile, reprehensible. It's despicable. They should be disintegrated. Forget no disintegrations. Yes, disintegrations for these two. Jason Sudeikis and Adam Pally. <laughs> Fuckers. <laughs> and just then, IG-11 arrives on the scene. And with him, Justice. The droid, hunter-turned-nurse, takes the troopers out with ease and delight, speeds toward town. Meanwhile, Mando, Kara, and a Delightful grief carga. <laughs> it's just having so much fun. The best. <laughs> Never missing a moment to swill some spotchka down despite being surrounded by dozens of stormtroopers. Amazing. An amazing moment to say, let's crack open this jug of bright blue spotchka. Why not? If not now, literally when? Literally when. Are holed up in the cantina, <laughs> surrounded, as we noted, by Moff Gideon's men. In true Star Wars fashion, their only viable escape route is down through the sewers. <laughs> sewers are good, Kara says. I love it. Gideon addresses his quarry, including Mando, who as a child was called Din Djarin by name, revealing that he's well aware of who they all are and from whence they all came. And finally, he comes to his point. He gives them until nightfall to arrange for the delivery of the child or an E-Web heavy repeating blaster will open fire on them. Mando deduces that the man addressing them must be Moff Gideon, an Imperial warlord, part of the ISB, and supposedly, so everyone thinks, executed for war crimes. And yet, standing here, stump speeching, Mando then flashes back to the destruction of his home world. The snippets that we've seen before, we now get the full thing at the hands of the B-2 droids during, we can deduce, and we'll talk about this later, the close of the Clone Wars. After his parents placed him in that bunker and the B-2 barreled down on him, he was rescued, we learn here, moments, seconds even prior to execution, by a Mandalorian warriors from Death Watch, the splinter group which opposed the pacifist reign of our cherished friend. And cherished 
lover, even. Truly. Duchess Satine during the Clone Wars. We're going to talk a lot more about the Death Watch aspect later. Mando reveals that he was brought into the Mandalorian culture as a foundling raised in the fighting corps. IG speeds into town, ready to fulfill his base function, care and protection of little baby Yoda. And gotta say, we're glad that someone is finally (laughs) doing it and taking it seriously. (gasps) Wonderful. It's just wonderful to see. Quill and then IG-11 really showing Mando how to live the rest of his life. Hopefully he's been paying attention. I mean, look at the delight on baby Yoda's face. The smile, the laugh, the wind in his hair, the wind in his ears. He's delighted. In what is perhaps the most thrilling scene in an episode that is chock-a-block with thrills, IG takes on an army of stormtroopers basically on his own as little baby Yoda, as Mallory mentioned chortles and giggles with glee. I love the way that IG kind of swings the baby Bjorn in which (laughs) LBY sits whenever he needs to reposition him to keep him out of harm's way. It's just tremendous. Again, Mando. Tremendous action sequence. Again, Mando, let's take notes on this, shall we? (laughs) Mando, who at the episode's end in a, again, very touching moment, but we'll just free carry baby Yoda into the fucking sky. (laughs) No, baby Bjorn. <laughs> Mando, Kara, Grief Karga. And a drunken Grief aid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. As IG shields Baby Yoda with his body, Mando picks up the EWEP, guns down scores of troopers. But without cover fire, Mando is vulnerable. And Gideon gets the angle on Mando and shoots out the E-Web's generator, the battery near Mando's feet, exploding it, sending our Beskar-clad dude through the air. And it turns out that while the Beskar protects you if something hits you on the outside, when your brain hits against it on the inside, that's less good. Kara manages to drag Mando back into the cantina and our heroes are alive, but trapped, and in Mando's case, gravely injured. Gideon orders the cantina put to flame. I don't know. Are you sure that that you could be injured from the inside of your helmet? I think we should study that for (laughs) several decades. Inside. (laughs) Dark. (laughs) Inside, it's absolute desperation. IG works to cut through the sewer grate. Mando, gravely injured, tells Kara that they should leave him behind. The incinerator trooper begins his assault and all seems lost. And then baby Yoda uses the force to throw the flames back at their source, killing the trooper. Baby Yodes collapses in exhaustion, and everyone is astonished. I'd like to shout out the shot from behind little baby Yoda, where he rises into the frame (laughs) as if standing. It makes absolutely physically and spatially zero sense. but It it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It looks so cool. It was like so magical. It really was. So magical. It's basically like if you took the Elmo raising his arms (laughs) in the fire gif and made it the most like emotionally resonant, chest pumping, heart-wrenching sequence imaginable. And then then when the camera pans back and you see his face and the way he's concentrating in his little 
eyes. It's just perfect. It's a perfect moment. And again, it makes zero sense spatially. It doesn't match the previous shot where he's already yeah. standing up and like looking at the flames. Yeah. Who cares? I do it's not. It's so great. It's absolutely pure fucking magic yes. distilled into a moment. I loved it. Kara eventually leaves through the sore, taking LBY after extracting a promise from IG-11 that he will bring Mando to them. The droid attempts to remove Mando's helmet. The warrior points his blaster at IG. No living thing has seen me without my helmet since I swore the creed. I am not a living thing, IG says. And we would protest that comment, of course. But the result is that for the first time, we see Mando's face. And it's Pedro Pascal. Look at that. Hey, there he is. Like wild helmet hair on our dude. She's losing literal years of helmet hair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I found that to be a small but really important thing. Like, if his hair had looked Good. styled and yeah, great, no, it would have been bad. so silly. It's absolutely got to yeah, look bad. Just, it looks like shit, and yeah. it should. <laughs> I loved it. IG sprays Bacta on Mando's head. Tells him he'll heal in a matter of hours. Our heroes reunite in the tunnels under the town. They're searching for the Mandalorian covert. But instead, they find a pile of Mandalorian helmets. Only one has survived the onslaught, the armorer. So we think. She explains that shortly after the Mandalorians revealed themselves, stormtroopers arrived in the tunnels. The armorer refuses to leave until she salvages what remains. You want to get into your uh, your math here about how many yeah, stormtroopers so it would have taken to achieve this? So, yeah, <laughs> I guess this is the question. How many stormtroopers died to take the tunnels? Like a thousand? <laughs> Considering I, how, I, if they can fight anywhere near as effectively as Mando and the armorer can, yeah. how many died? Legions. Like, it's amazing there are swarms. any left. I, for real. Swarms of stormtroopers died in those tunnels. <laughs> the armorer asked to see Baby Yoda, the creature who all of these other Mandalorians died to protect. She knows of the history between the Mandalorians and the Jedi, gives Mando a brief history download, which he sorely needs, and yes, of does. course, his mission. The foundling, Baby Yoda, must be. Just like we've been saying the whole time, folks, protected at all costs. And delivered, she says, to his own kind, whoever and wherever they may be. She tells Mando that he is Baby Yoda's father now. Gives him a mudhorn signet, a sign communicating their clan of two. She also gives him Chekhov's jetpack. Won't have to wait long for that one. Explosions in the tunnel signal the arrival of the Imperials. IG fends off the first wave, but more are sure to arrive. The armorer points them down the lava river, after which they can cross the plains and escape. And they leave. Soon after, a squad of imps finds the armorer. Wielding only a hammer and tongs, she smashes them with ease. Amazing sequence. You know what this reminded me of? What's that? Serio Pharrell. Oh, wow. Good one. (laughs) Facing down the Lannister guards and it gave me hope jason it gave me hope that despite everything after all these years serial lives i'm just saying <laughs> I, I don't know if if mandalorian has taught me anything it's to never give up mando cara ig lby grief carga 
board a boat, which I will note, I think it's odd, even though it's made of this formidable stone, that Kara's decision to loose the boat yeah, from its restraints is to shoot the bottom of it. I guess, listen, again, when you carry a hammer, you know, it's it didn't make any sense, but that's fine. What if you get holes in the boat and then the lava yeah. gets there? I'm just shooting the bottom of a boat that you want to <laughs> get in is usually not Duh. how you do it. But that's thinking outside the box. Odd strategy, though. I prefer her shoot the boat than shoot yeah. the droid. Duh. The boat is captained by a Karen-esque ferryman droid. An astromech with these long arm and leg limbs. Never really seen anything like it. Incredible. For their trip down the lava river. In sight of the exit, Mando scans ahead and detects a platoon of imp stormtroopers waiting for them just outside. They are, they think, Trapped. I would ask why they think this, yes. given that it's like a dozen Again. stormtroopers. They've taken out much more than that. How many have we anyway, killed? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> in an attempt to get the boat to stop so that they have time to think, needlessly executes <laughs> this the hard. poor fairy droid who is literally just performing his base function. Kara, tough look for my girl. What are you doing? This was very, very, very hard, especially because it's like, wait a second. You're not even going to wait for the translation from IG? How about it's like IG, tell it to stop. Also, like I don't condone violence against the droid in in any capacity. The droid did nothing wrong. However, if you feel that time is so precious and of the essence that you must act in such a rash fashion, how about a fucking warning shot? You got to go right for the head. You got to go right for the neural harness. And finally, the boat didn't even fucking stop. It just kept on going. <laughs> Save that bullet that you used on the poor fairy droid for the stormtroopers, and then maybe you can go kill them instead of IG having to self-detonate. Come on, guys. I know it's a stressful situation, <laughs> but let's, let's have some foresight. An execution right in front of little baby Yoda, whose nurse is a droid. It's like Listen. awful. He's seen worse. Unfortunately, he's seen worse. Unfortunately, he has seen worse. That's true. Poor kid. Poor 50-year-old kid. (laughs) He's 50. (laughs) IG says that his manufacturer's (laughs) security protocols are still in effect. He must then self-destruct if capture is imminent. IG says he sees no way for them to fight their way out and therefore no way to avoid capture. Again, we would quibble with this formula, but that's fine. He extracts a terrible, tragic assurance from Mando. Promise to protect the child so the droid can fulfill his secondary directive and self-destruct to avoid capture. Mando, with real sadness, agrees. IG plunges into the lava, strides to the mouth of the tunnel, and self-destructs the thermal detonator inside of his chest, clearing out the troopers. Our question is, why don't you take the thermal detonator out of your chest and throw it at the (laughs) stormtroopers? It's a great question. Also, the one that Kara's just holding on to this yeah, whole time. We, what about that one? What's that one for? Just for a rainy day? For good luck? So many questions. And yet, it was what it was. So, Isaac, give us those no. No. For IG-11. Miss you, pal. Crushed it. Absolutely crushed it. You live on in our hearts and memories. But the danger has not ended. As our heroes make land on the lava flats... Moff Gideon's angry TIE fighter screams overhead. They open fire on him, but to no effect. Karga, then, sincerely one of the best moments 
in the history of humanity. Truly shit-faced at this moment. Like, the full <laughs> spotchka has hit him, and he is hammered. <laughs> Asks Baby Yoda to do the magic hand thing. And Baby Yoda so preciously coos and waves with his little claw in reply. Just an astonishingly wonderful moment. Gideon comes around for another pass. And Mando, despite everything the armorer said about not using your rising phoenix until you've heard everything from Dumbledore about how Fox regenerates <laughs> and whatnot, straps on his jetpack, takes the fight right to the Imperial using his handy old cable. Love it's been right he, there for he us. He loves that cable. Loves it. It's been right there since the opening scene of the entire show. Latches on, clambers on to the tie. Gideon tries to shake the warrior off, but Mando attaches after a couple misses. Grenade to the tie's wing strut. Leaps off the fighter. We saw Ray slice through yeah. the wing of Kylo's tie, and here we get another wing tie takedown. The moth yells a very Gus Fring-like, no! <laughs> Has anyone ever been better <laughs> at screaming no moments before being blown up? It's <laughs> amazing. He brought so much Gus energy to this he episode. Really I loved it. Oh, man. And the grenade explodes. Gideon's TIE fighter goes down. But because this is Star Wars, That's right. nobody checks to see if he actually died. Mando, meanwhile, breaks his fall with his handy new jetpack. Karga and Kara, in a truly wild move, <laughs> announce <laughs> that they want to stay on Navarro. It's a lovely planet, Jason. <laughs> it's just covered with lava and corpses. What's not to like? All the scum and villainy has been washed away. Karga says that the guild would welcome Mando back with open arms whenever he's ready to return to the job. Instead, Incredible. Mando picks up little baby Yoda. He will fulfill. Oh, I love that. Oh my God. When oh, he's got his little when hands. Vinny's looking up at him. Little, little arms reaching up. Wants to be picked up like a baby. <laughs> Mando will fulfill his obligation to the foundling and return him to his people. At the crest, Mando buries Quill. And while this is incredibly sweet and moving, I will just say, again, lovely gesture. I think Quill would have wanted to be buried on Arvala 7. Yeah, he doesn't want to be buried here. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think he'd want to know eternal peace in his valley, but sure. <laughs> Baby steps for Mando, you yes. know, as an empathetic person. <laughs> Mando and LBY board the ship. And in the cockpit, Mando sees Baby Yoda chewing on his mythosaur skull Mandalorian pendant. What a powerful symbol of yes. little Baby Yoda being brought into the Mandalorian tribe here. He lets the child keep it, and they blast off. Dun, dun, dun. Meanwhile, at the Moff's mm. crashed tie. Jawas, of course, already on the scene searching for any Naturally. scrap they can salvage when a blade from inside the tie ignites. Dun, 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 dun. Moff Gideon cuts his way out of the wreckage, stands atop the tie fighter in his hand. The fabled Darksaber. Bom, 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 bom. Genuine chills. That was fucking dark saber. Jason? Yes. We are a clan of two. Oh, wonderful. Four. Isaac and Cram, yes. too, of course. That gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's search our feelings and use the force. 
The defining theme of this episode is binge mode favorite. Yes. The family you choose. Let's start with a little bit of big picture talk. Sure. Because this was truly a phenomenal, delightful. energizing finale. It's incredible. I mean, really some of the best action like in film or TV of this year. Getting in right under the wire. Absolutely thrilling. Amazing stuff. Written by John Favreau, directed by Taika Waititi, who also, of course, starred as IG-11 in the episode. It's the, interestingly, the longest episode of the season, 49 total minutes, about 41-ish minutes of actual episode. And in that 41 minutes, we were treated to a really tremendous blend yep. of genre and vibe and tone. We got riveting action, some truly belly-aching humor. Yeah, some funny stuff. And a lot of real heart and emotional depth. And it was tight. It was clear. It was focused, tied up. Myriad loose ends from the season, which we'll obviously talk about as we go through the episode, while still preserving the essential Baby Yoda-centric mysteries of the Enterprise for season two and some of the smaller but still delicious little morsels of mysteries, like the spur boot that went up to Fennec at the end of episode five, for example, and set up a slew of possibilities for season two. And thanks to a John Favreau tweet from the day of the finale, we know that season two will be coming about a year after season one began, fall of 2020, folks. Get ready. I'm excited. I can't wait. It's really just a wonderful treat for Star Wars fans coming on the end of a discourse cycle centered around the rise of Skywalker that has been uh, yet again divisive. And here comes a thing that is just really fun to celebrate that has, sure, flaws and plot holes like everything else in Star Wars, but that is like just so energetic and positive and fun and wonderful to spend time with. It's just a great example of the kind of fun you can have in this universe. A confidently told tale. Yes. Each director brought something new to it, brought their own kind of style within the overall palette, but a cohesive vision that connects both to Star Wars past and has some mysterious tendrils reaching into the future and then has its own very, very clear identity. One thing that's been really fun to think about as I, like you, have been combing through back episodes of Clone Wars and Rebels is Uh how Mandalorian-focused a lot of those arcs are. And so it's great to see Favreau and Filoni exploring that slice of the universe in this series. Yeah, you you really feel the Favreau-Filoni obsession, their fandom, in the way that this season close, you know, we're going to talk about Darksaber a lot today. You're focusing the Jedi Temple on it, but something like that is is really emblematic. You know, it's a a George Lucas creation, but it was introduced to the story in 2010 in Clone Wars through Filoni. And the character who initially wields it is Favreau's character. You know, they're tapping into all the things (laughs) that they directly love and are interested in, and that, that sincere passion really shows through. The mission and tasks are obviously, you know, entirely different, but for Mando, there's no conflict what came before. There are stakes, a focused view on a cast of characters, exploration with a mission behind it, and it's connected to Star Wars as a whole, but not weighted down by the kind of expectations that can come with the Star Wars IP. Season Mm -hmm. one proved to be 
incredibly aspirational and an exciting yes. template for the kind of things that Disney Plus can do with Star Wars as it goes forward. Mm-hmm. Honestly, cannot wait for more Baby Yoda wait. in my life and season two of The Mandalorian. I know that you can't wait for the Obi-Wan series. That's going to be really fun. <laughs> it's basically all I think about. I can't wait. I hope we get a date soon. Yeah, not to mention Cassian Clone Wars Season 7, which yes, should February. Fill, which really should fill in a lot of the blanks around Mando's early history and what happened to the Mandalorian people. Oh, yeah. You're intrigued by that Siege of Mandalore talk from this episode. We'll get ready for Season 7 of Clone Wars. That was supposed to be the plan mm-hmm. before the series ended but they never got there. So I'm, you know, I think that we see the Siege of Mandalore depicted in Clone Wars Season 7 on Disney+. Plus. Just a really, really great way to celebrate the Star Wars universe. Yeah, and what it can bring. And in, in this finale in this season in particular, one of the things that was so impressive about this endnote is that we got these numerous reveals really seamlessly integrated into the story as was being told. Darksaber, the mm-hmm. presence of, we think, Death Watch, the armor speech about the history between the Jedi and Mandalorians, Gideon's speech with the little history downloads on all of our friends, Mando's full flashback, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It made the show bigger again. It widened the scope again. That was one of the primary questions That's throughout crucial. the entire season is, again— Nothing but respect for our president, Baby Yoda. (laughs) But could they make us care about more than that? You know, he's enough for us, but could they make us care about more than that? And the answer after this finale is unambiguously yes. LBY has our full heart, but we now have in complete, and this is the most impressive part, concert and harmony with our investment in him. Those broader Mandalorian-centric questions again, that galactic scope with Gideon, while maintaining this really lovely, tender, intimate focus on Baby Yoda and on his relationship with Din Djarin. It's just, it's masterful. It's so good. I'm really sad it's over. I can't wait to watch it all again. I can't believe we get another season in just a year. I know, we don't have to crazy. wait longer than it's that. Great. It's so wonderful. What a delight. All right, let's talk about the episode itself. Yes. And I think we have to start, as much as we love LBY and place him first in our hearts always, I think we have to start this time with IG-11. Yeah, you talked about the way the last few episodes of this series and the finale in particular kind of broadened our scope, brought in the other characters, made it less of an LBY-centric endeavor. And IG-11 was a big part of that and this finale. Some of the best action. Yes. In this episode. Amazing. I will think about IG leaping off of the speeder and skidding to a stop and then just firing away in the midst of these stormtroopers for a long time. That was an absolutely thrilling moment as the speeder goes like tumbling into their midst. Oh my God. Cutting them down like a scythe through wheat. Yes. You know what I loved about that so much is that even the the most pro-droid Star Wars fans, mm-hmm. which we certainly are, you know, you think of, of droids by definition sometimes as like, stiff, rigid, somehow inhibited in their motion. And this was just so yeah. fluid. Like it, it, it felt like a symphony where every note was just clicking into place. And even though it was this, from IG's perspective, improvised act. Like there was this orchestra where every instrument was kicking in the way that it was supposed to. And people were, the characters in the show, just like the viewer at home, 
watching in awe yes. with this yes. desire and yes. necessity almost to participate, but this also the shared like reverence for yeah. what you were witnessing. It was just incredible. <laughs> that it. entire the the from the kind of like lightning attack into the town and the approach to the town square to rescue the uh, our friends in the cantina all of it was put together in this masterful way we see him go in take out the stormtroopers at the gate and then like shift into high gear do the double gun thing and start taking out stormtroopers all along the street and then we get that shot from inside the cantina from Kara's perspective as she's like seeing these explosions happen like across town approaching the square and be like, wait, what the, what, what is that? And then all of a sudden all the stormtroopers turn to look. It's just so well put together and it's awesome. An absolute <laughs> thrill. IG of course provides us in that moment with some real full circle harmony following through on the promise that Quill made to Mando in yes. chapter seven fulfilling the directive that Quill built into him, programming him to protect, to nurture, to take care of little baby Yoda. And what a payoff that was. IG, of course, could have stayed in the crest like Mando told him to, but his mandate from his creator, Quill, was to protect. And once he saw Quill's body, he knew that little baby Yoda was in danger and he had Uh to take control and take the child into his care. And the question of whether, you know, whether he chooses to do this, considering that that is a directive that is programmed into him Mm -hmm. is an interesting one. But as we saw throughout this episode, his actions, despite being programmed, convey real compassion, real emotion and real intent. And he's able to reflect on them, despite the fact that they are programmed into him. He's able to say, well, this is my directive. I have to do this. Here is why. I know you're sad about this. And that I'm having trouble hearing Whoa, you. Sorry. Oh my god. <laughs> sorry about that. Oh my god. Incredible moment to be talking about like basically AI. <laughs> I know. And, and and consciousness. Wow. I know. That was, Siri, really, Siri that was actually it. almost spooky. <laughs> <laughs> really weird. Oh my god. IG, is that you? IG? As we saw in chapter seven's montage, really moving mm. montage of him Gorgeous. learning, of Queel teaching him. This is a product, not just of nature, his programming, but of nurturing, a real change. Yes, that is so key. He chose this. I believe it fully. His nature, though, his ingrained nature as an assassin, despite his nurture, despite these changes in his disposition and intent, it paid dividends, too, in this episode when he arrives at the beginning with the foul, cursed scout troopers and says, I am this child's nurse droid and require that you remand him to me immediately. I was like screaming at my television. IG, yes, get them, go. (laughs) It's just like, (laughs) oh my God. And he is just an absolute madman with those blasters murdering the troopers in appropriately painful fashion given the crimes that they committed. And then I love the little acknowledgement when he turns to Baby Yoda and says, that was unpleasant. I'm sorry you had to see that. I felt like that was the show's apology to us. That was important. Not only acknowledging the effect of the violence on Baby Yoda, but the show's apology to us for making us see Baby Yoda punched in the fucking head three times. It's so upsetting. The whole sequence with him in that little sack... Yeah. That satchel. Like when he peeks through and you just see his one eye, 
the curiosity. He wants yeah. to know what's happening. It was such an amazing blend of reminding us that he needs help and yeah. he needs protection, but also that he's not going to be content to just sit back right. and watch. He wants to have an active hand and be involved. It was just mesmerizing. And again, the way that Baby Yoda just absolutely delighted in being on that speeder with IG when they were heading into town, giving our friends a, a chance to make it out of the cantina eventually. And there's a lot of really, really cool potent symmetry yes. in this episode bookends to other moments from earlier in the season. And one of them is a violent one, ultimately, just as IG and Mando united in chapter one when they were searching for the asset at that point in time in the first place to overcome this town square and take the enemy's ammo and use it against them. IG's arrival here allows Mando to perform a similar tactic by taking the E-Web Heavy yep. under his control. But ultimately, it doesn't work out super well for him in this case because Gideon explodes the E-Web generator and badly injures Mando. And then what happens as a result of that, of course, we don't want to see Mando harmed. Though we have thought all season that he would be injured and that that yeah. might be one of the things that ultimately led to his helmet needing to be removed. IG-11 literally saves his life. And this is just an incredible, not only scene in the episode, but an incredible storytelling choice for a few different reasons. So on the one hand, IG-11 is following an order, in this case from Kara. But he's also ignoring orders from Mando, who keeps telling him, you know, don't take off my helmet, do this, do that, because he's doing what he believes is right. He is showing agency and decision-making power. He even makes a brain joke yeah, you know, calling back to his own neural damage from chapter one and his direct personal history with Mando. That was a joke. It was meant to put you at ease. It's just tremendous. And, you know, what is one of the through lines of the season and of Mando's story so far been? That he hates droids. Yes. That he doesn't trust them. Of course, we have seen these flashbacks. We understand why. And as recently as last week, chapter seven, he mistrusted IG specifically and fiercely fervently. But because of their shared desire to protect and fight for Baby Yoda, Mando ultimately was able to see IG-11's heart. And it altered this nearly lifelong bias that Mando had forged against droids when the B-2s killed his family and yeah. destroyed that part of his homeworld. So that idea of the family you choose, it's not always that you're choosing each other directly. Sometimes another force is bringing yeah. you together, and that desire to stand by Baby Yoda is that thing for Mando and IG. Some really tender parallels in this. In Chapter 1, Mando shoots IG point blank in the head to save yes. Baby Yoda's life. Chapter 8, IG-11 heals Mando. Now, Baby Yoda's father, who has an injury to his head, in order to keep their family unit together so that yes. they together can deliver little Baby Yoda to safety. And it, again, incredible choice and really a great payoff to have IG-11 mm -hmm. be the one to remove Mando's helmet. We've been theorizing all season about when is he going to take off the helmet and under what circumstances and who's going to do it and why. Yep. It was just masterfully done here. Really masterfully done. We get to see Mando's face, Din Djarin's face, as we now know him, as we now know that he was called by his people. And on the one hand, it's a little bit of a cheat. Mando can tell himself that he followed the way because yep. IG-11 is not technically alive. 
And yet we, the audience, can see Pedro Pascal once this season and also understand that this is, you know, allows us to wonder how alive these droids really are. The nature of the negotiation between IG and Mando before IG wins taps into one of Star Wars and life's great questions. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be alive? Yes. IG saying that he's not a, quote, living thing in order to convince Mando to let him remove the helmet and thus treat him with the back to spray. It's a real crushing moment. And it, you know, I've been wondering as I rewatch, like, how much of that IG really believes? Mm-hmm. Is that really what IG thinks? I don't know the answer to that. And I think it's a really interesting thing to think about. He does, IG, certainly from our perspective, is alive. Yes. A different yes. sort of life. And I don't mean that just in the biological sense, but in the way that he processes reality and information and feelings and the feelings of others. He does process those things differently, but I wouldn't say that he's not alive. I would say he's very much alive, just in a different way. Consciousness, sentience, heart, you know, the desire to not only to achieve some sort of end, but to do it for a reason and a reason that he prizes. You know, yeah. if that's not life, and I think in light of today's theme, that that aspect of it specifically, you know, aligning with other beings because you have a shared ambition and a shared purpose. Like, if that's not life, then what is, you know? Yeah, there's a contrast IG's actions. And he does more in this scene to save Mando than many other... Mm-hmm. human beings would many other of the people that Mando has fought beside would have done throughout this series contrast those actions with Gideon's little monologue in the square about how you can't trust me I'm going to do whatever I need to do that's in my right. best interests right now those interests happen to align with you being alive for a little bit longer contrast mm-hmm. that with the just overflowing selflessness of IG in this moment and it's a really fascinating contrast. And we know when Gideon says that, that he means it because he, he killed it. the client already. Yeah. He's gunning down as the scout troopers. And, and, you know, that sequence is so hard to watch because of the way they hurt Baby Yoda. But the comedy of their yeah. exchange hinges a lot on how Gideon is just gunning down his own men with reckless abandon. You know, we, we were mentioning earlier some of the the loops that didn't close. Well, how he's going to bring Pershing back into the yeah. loop and whether Pershing has his true allegiance is one of the more intriguing yes. season two questions. But yes, I, I agree with you. That contrast is deliberate and, and yes. stark. Amazingly, in saying the things that IG says to Mando and treating him with such tenderness, IG doesn't affirm Mando's anti-droid views. He truly, as yeah. we see on the boat, reverses them. It's it's remarkable. And then think about how a droid, that B2, is the thing mm-hmm. that sent Din Djarin under the Mandalorian helmet in the first place. And then the fact that here, a droid, IG, is the one who finally gets him to take that off in front of another being. And, and yes, IG is a being. You know, the symmetry there is just so lovely. And it's one of the many examples in this episode, and it is really just a testament to the show's attention to that kind of detail and the pursuit of that kind of harmony and the recognition that that's a real thing in life. Those mirror moments that make you reflect on your past and, and then think about what you want your future to be in. And another such detail is the fact that when Mando was a child and the B2 was hovering over him in that bunker, you know, signifying this yeah this terrifying strength and this threat of an incursion and the very, very, very real threat of death, 
IG is positioned above him. Yeah. In a similar fashion here, really hovering over Mando, who at this point is shrunken, vulnerable. And especially when we have the helmet removal, we see that he's sad and defeated and afraid. And that mirror positioning, but inversion of the intent and what is unfolding signifies really the power of not just with droids, but with anything in life, keeping an open mind, being willing to let new things and new people into your heart if you can. That is such an incredible moment and contrast. I think of the same thing with contrasting the B2 over Mando as a baby in the bunker and that shot of IG after he's crashed into the square with LBY and the baby Bjorn when he's taking shots to his chassis and he, and he goes down on one knee and he's just, mm-hmm. you know, protecting little baby Yoda literally with his body as yeah. he's hunched over on the ground. Just as it was a surprise to have IG, not little baby Yoda, not Kara, not Omera or Karga or even Gideon to be the one that removes I, Mando's <laughs> helmet. I do miss Omera though. She'll be back. Absolutely. I hope so. I think so. It was a surprise, a real surprise to see someone other than little baby Yoda via the force healing power he debuted in chapter seven and previously tried to use in chapter two, heal Mando. But a really great, great surprise. The kind that breeds real confidence in the show's direction and the way it's going to lay its groundwork. And is a lot of the reason why we're so enthusiastic about this episode today. It shows that, okay, they know what they're doing and they know how to tell a story. Yes. It's just an incredible example of like how to surprise people working in an IP that, you know, if you're cynical, you would say doesn't have a lot of surprises or doesn't allow the latitude to surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just that they have a plan And they're executing it with precision without becoming predictable, but also in a way that we sit there as we watch it unfold and say, yes, this feels right, but also I'm awed. You know, that's a delicate balance to have done everything along the way to make something click, to make it make sense, to not have anything that happens feel like a deus ex machina or some sort of invention of the moment. But to also say, and like even just last week, we spent a lot of last week's episode talking about how it felt like it was heading toward this essential budding of some sort of relationship and partnership between IG and and Mando. And then we got it, but it was still thrilling. Every every step of the way was thrilling. Yeah, I think that, again, you know, we talk a lot about stakes and and what it means to kill a character and when you do it. And I think this is one of those where it's like, you know, we lose Quill just as it feels like we're starting to understand his heart. And then we lose IG just as his new programming is blossoming before our eyes and it really hurts. And it's what makes these last two episodes in this finale so effective. Um, One gripe, however, ever since the thermal detonator self-destruct sequence in chapter one that seemed absolutely like Chekhov's self-destruct capability, did IG really have to die in this moment? It was a Val from (laughs) Solo-like moment where you're like, hold on. Val's legacy. Do we need to do this right now? Again, it's a thermal detonator. Take it Mm -hmm. out of your chest and throw it. Also, Mando has several grenades. He just restocked. Yeah. At the Armorer's Forge. I don't, that part of it is very troubling to me. You know, the the episode goes out of its way to to make sure we know that they're restocking on weapons. Yeah. And also, like, went out of its way to let us know that stormtroopers are awful. Maybe it's not their fault. (laughs) And maybe the vision care plan under the Empire's (laughs) health benefits is just not good because these guys are fucking blind. (laughs) 
They can't <gasps> see. I loved that whole sequence where they're just missing and missing. I know that, you know, Ben, our colleague Ben Lindbergh wrote about this in his piece, and this was this was a, a thing in episode six as yeah. well when yeah. Bill Burr's character took umbrage at the idea that he would have been a stormtrooper. Whether the characters in the universe should be mocking the troopers the way that we do at home and how if that's happening, then it kind of undermines their standing as a threat. But I think this is just one of those things where, A, we have to say it's 9 ABY. You right. know, we're not yes. in, in the peak 501st Legion right. time here. And also, again, this is just what the show does so well. These yeah. little winks to us that feel subtle and earned and totally appropriate without ever feeling like these kind of needy grabs at our attention. It's just, it's really just like effortless. And, yeah. and I, I, I think it's great. I 100% agree. And if there's one kind of, you know, overarching question that I have often about the Star Wars universe, and I think some of this stems from the the interesting structure with the original films coming out starting in the late 70s, followed by the prequels, which in fictional time come before the original movies. There's always the question of why characters within this world seem to forget stuff that happened relatively recently or don't ever seem to <laughs> right. reference things that happened yeah. relatively recently or don't seem to know about stuff that they should know about. The Force is one thing that we've talked about within this series. Mm -hmm. So it is really fun to see characters within this world talk about a thing that they would have noticed and learned over the course of that deadly totally. galactic civil war. It's just really great. I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> so the one thing about IG's death, needless though it may have been, is that because we got it, we were treated to some of Mando's most really extraordinary growth mm -hmm. through the lens of that transformative relationship with IG. Listen, you're not going anywhere. We need you. Let's yeah. just come up with a, that's, you know, Mando pleading with him to not die. And IG says, please tell me the child will be safe in your care. If you do so, I can default to my secondary command but you'll be destroyed. That's like such a crushing sad. moment when Mando says that. And you will live and I will have served my purpose. No, we need you. This is iconic. There's nothing yeah. to be sad about. And then again, the I've never been alive line and Mando says, I'm not sad. Yes, you are. I'm a nurse droid. I've analyzed your voice. Mando went from killing IG-11 in chapter one, shooting him in the head to begging him here not to die in chapter eight. Just a really remarkable reminder of how the ties that bind and the family that forms organically around yeah. you as you live your life can alter the course of history. And as the sequence is unfolding, this lava river undeniably evokes yes. the river Styx, the path to Quite Hades. Quite consciously, yes. Deliberately, yes. The path to Hades and hell itself. And that sweet, doomed astromech <laughs> ferryman. <laughs> IG, in a fashion at least, is our friend's soul departing from this group, from this family. And there's something just so powerful about the image of our buddies, this family unit that chose to stand there and fight together, united in the face of this threat. You know, much of this episode and, and much of this season hinges on what it means to be a Mandalorian. That is the heart of the show yeah. in a lot of ways, obviously, in addition to how darling Baby Yoda is. Darling! That means being brave. <laughs> that means being dedicated. Yeah. That means being willing to lay down your life to protect those you care about and the thing that you believe in. And a scene like this even though it is not 
at the Mandalorian covert or taking place in the sky with jetpacks still really, really staunchly reinforces what it means to make a choice like that and to be a family. Return reroll after word from our sponsor. Binge Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm. State Farm agents know that sometimes life throws everything at you at once. Like a fender bender when you're already late. When it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are there for you. Talk to one of our 19,000 State Farm agents via text, over the phone, in person, or using the State Farm app. Find one today at statefarm.com. And now back to binge mode. What about our good friends, Kara? Mm. And the scenery-chewing grief carga, <laughs> a.k.a. Carl Weathers, who is on his king shit in this episode in a way that is absolutely iconic. We talked about the saunter over to the jug of Spotchka as they're facing down <laughs> death. <laughs> what about the moment after they've exited the lava tunnel, they're on the planes, Moff Gideon's TIE fighter is screaming overhead. They don't know what to do. Cargo looks down at little baby Ova and says, let's make the baby do the magic hand thing. Come on, baby. Do the magic <laughs> hand thing. And then little baby Yoda, mirroring our own joy at this, looks at grief and waves his little hand and goes, yeah! <laughs> so amazing. Again, it's one of these signs that in addition to just the comedy of the moment, the charm of the moment, it's a recognition that the show understands what the audience would be thinking right. and the kind of questions that the audience would be asking. Because all season long, we've said, why aren't they at any point turning to Baby Yoda and saying, hey, do that. Right, right. Do the magic hand thing. Like, use the force. Save us. Do something that hadn't happened at all at that point. And it's important. Yeah. It's important that these characters would be observing this, this miraculous thing unfolding around them and trying to harness it, though, of course, they can. And that's one of the really brilliant strokes about that moment, too, in addition to the hilarity of it and, again, the charm. It's a reminder that Baby Yoda is still reacting purely on instinct right now. Yes. He's not trained. He has not built up his strength. You know, he still needs to plop down and nap after it's just... every, every moment that he uses the force. You know, he cannot yet solve every problem. Right. He needs other people. He needs family and Karga and Kara, even though they have less reason than Mando does. You know, obviously, Baby Yoda healed Karga and saved his life, and Kara's very invested in this quest. But still, they have less reason than Mando directly, and they still choose to stand there and fight with him and for him in the face of a war criminal so feared that just the mention of his name evokes his entire history yeah. to those listening and the fact that he was supposed to be executed for war crimes. And by the way, you know what kind of shit you have to do to earn that in Star Wars? In fucking Star Wars. I mean, everyone's a war criminal in, in Star, Star Wars. Wars. This is a guy <laughs> who, in his introduction to our story, orders the gunning down of, like, 12 of his own men, including his man on the ground, Werner Herzog, a.k.a. the client. What a fucking animal. An animal. And then on the other side, you have... Characters like Kara and Karga, who, you know, even with charming moments yeah. like Kara's, I don't do the baby thing line, there's no surer path to our hearts than choosing to help protect Yodes. None. Yeah. 
they are, of course, very different people. But, you know, what is a family if not a collection of different people who want to have each other within their own company for protection, for emotional support? Despite the fact being motivated by different ends, they are both characters looking out for themselves early in the season. And yet they unite here to help Mando because of the common goal to protect little baby Yoda even in the face of really what looks to be hopeless odds. And it's there's a lot of heartrending scenes in this episode we talked about, IG. The one that preceded that with Kara over Mando, she feels the slick of blood coming from behind his helmet. For such a tough person to be really broken up over the death of a comrade in arms, you know that means something from a shock trooper who's seen yes. death on a unimaginable scale. Yes. Here is Mando yeah. saying, let me have a warrior's death, feeling that a real slice of intimacy because he knows that Kara would understand what that means. And she's saying, you know, mm -hmm. I won't leave you. The galaxy is a huge and often very lonely place. And when you find someone you want to fight for, who you know will fight for you as they do, because they fought yes. side by side now numerous times, it's a really meaningful thing. And then promise me you'll bring him, Kara says to IG after LBY saves them from the fire. It's a really, it's really emotional stuff, really tugs at the heartstrings. It's just great that IG hands her the baby. Mm -hmm. And then she wants to make sure that IG is going to bring her friend along and save his life as well. Yeah. I, you know, everything reminds us of Thrones, yes. obviously. But this relationship in particular really, really evokes Night's Watch. Mm -hmm comps. Yeah. And the backstories of the characters are different. The thing that they're fighting for is different. The place in their respective worlds that they are is different. But this idea that you end up by somebody who maybe you never had any reason to think right. you'd be standing by, and that that bond that has forged between you and the thing that you are fighting for together has somehow become the most important thing in the world yeah. alongside your core principles is just a, a tremendously difficult and remarkable thing to be able to convey and make us invest in in yes. this short of a span of time. It's really great. And then we get in an episode full of reveals, we get the wonderful yes. reveal, a wonderful reveal within a terrible reveal, one that Gideon knows who they all are and is aware yes. of them, their backstories, their back histories, all and of it. surely the things that have brought them here. But through that, we get Kara's full name, Kara Cynthia Dune from Alderaan, <sighs> which is a crucial nugget. Huge. Say no more. This is huge. Say yes. no more. You know, we need not know anything else about her motivations to continue the fight against the Imperials and her distaste for the kind of post-war politicking that is surely going on. Alderaan never got a chance. She's not willing to give the Imperials a chance either. And no wonder exactly. she aligned with Mando in his mission, which brought him into conflict with him, the Empire took away her homeworld. And those who stand against her friends are her enemies. Karga, meanwhile, and this is a shock, disgraced magistrate? <laughs> Grief Karga? Fascinating reveal! Listen, Grief Karga, <laughs> I think... Cargo was doing okay as a, as a kind of like guild master, right? I think we could say he was doing okay. The fact that this guy was involved I in mean, governing any kind of large scale territory 
is I is shocking. I need this spinoff, and yeah. I need it now. <laughs> I feel that we can say, based on the way that Karga responded to receiving his own share of the Beskar yeah. from Mando's Hall, you know, I'm rich. Definitely. Right, yes. <laughs> definitely a scandal. Well, listen, cor- <laughs> again. Cargo's magistrate watch. On the take, <laughs> yes. I feel sure of it. <laughs> <laughs> to your earlier point about war criminals, who the fuck's not corrupt in this world? Like, you know what I mean? Yes. Like, they're all corrupt. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> but he must have, like, to be disgraced, oh it, he must have really gone for it. <laughs> Oh my god! Maybe one at one point in time, someone shouted at him, "Karga, they all hate you because you're a disgraced magistrate." <laughs> and just the fact that, like, the fact that he went from a pretty significant person within the galactic judicial system to mm-hmm. bounty hunter manager <laughs> in, in like a galactic backwater is fascinating. And again, to echo your point. We must know more. Listen, as he says, some of his favorite people are bounty hunters. (laughs) Now, I think we both agree that we do wish they had gone with Mando and LBI on the crest. Yes, and Mando wished it too. He was sad. He needed. Listen, and Mando finally is at the point where he's like, "Okay, I need help, and here's two people I can trust." Finally, here's two people that I actually can call upon to help me on this mission. And then they're like, "Now we're going to stay on Navarro." Kara, I get it, because she's like, listen, the Imperials are here, so I'm here. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm going to clean it up. I'm yep. going to clean it up. Karga, on the Let other me just hand- make sure we got them all. Karga, <laughs> I mean, he's a guy <laughs> that has not made clearly good decisions in his life, so I guess I get it. But it's, I just wish they, habit. wish they had stuck around. <laughs> I feel certain they will be back with Mando and Baby Yoda. For Sure. What about our friend Mando, Din Djarin, Little Baby Yoda, and what we've learned about the Mandalorian way and culture? I guess we should probably start calling him Din now, but I just can't do it. I can't do it. Even though, you know, in the sequence with the armorer, we see the stormtroopers say Mando to the armorer, too. Like, we know that's just a thing that people say to anyone in Mandalorian armor. I I just can't call him Din. It's it's a habit now. It's ingrained. Much like Cargo, I'll keep making bad choices. Call him Mando. The Gideon stump speech that we were just discussing, this colossal information download, certainly by the standards of this season of this show, which really specialized in dispensing just tiny morsels of backstory, one little crumb at a time. Tidal wave of information. Yes. Getting this deluge has a dual effect. One, obviously, teaches us more about our characters. Of course. Two, though, it really makes us fear and respect Gideon as a real villain, a real rival threat for Mando and Baby Yoda, someone we have to take seriously, because what do we understand in this world? Information is one of the most precious things, the most precious resource, and he clearly has it in droves. We still don't know everything, though, at the end of this episode, and that's important. We don't know why he wants... Baby Yoda. Yeah. The things that made him say last episode, you may think you have some idea what you're in possession of, but you do not. And then it means more to me than you will ever know. We still don't know exactly why he's saying that. You know, all of our previous inferences still stand, but we didn't get confirmation of that. That lingers as a a mystery. Nor, if we're going to 
be content to pick just a few nits in a largely sublime episode, we also don't understand quite what changed from him saying those things. And even earlier in the season, you know, telling Pershing that, as we learned through Pershing, that he wanted the asset brought back alive, to him being willing here in this episode, in this moment, to burn down the cantina with Baby Yoda in it, that's a bit of a puzzler. It's quite a 180 and in a very short amount of time. Maybe it's supposed to tell us that he is despite we would think being quite meticulous given his yeah. standing as, as someone who survived a would-be execution and has remained as the leader of this Imperial Remnant, maybe he's quite rash, driven by emotion. We, we, we don't know. So that'll be something to continue to monitor with his character. But we do learn from him quite a bit about Mando, both directly from Gideon and then through the reveals that Mando is inspired to share on the heels of Gideon's remarks. So first, as we've noted, we learn Mando's name, Din Djarin, which amusingly Pedro Pascal had previously let slip Whoops. in a recent interview, but remained a mystery in the show until now. One of the few leaks of any sort I from know. season one of Mando. Just incredible how they kept so much of this on lock. We also learn that Gideon knowing that name is, in Mando's eyes, a remarkable thing. It's so remarkable that it enables Mando to ID him as Gideon because that family name only exists, he tells us, in the registers of Mandalore. And that means that Gideon, a former ISB agent, and more on the ISB coming in the 8 today, had access to that. Now, we also see Mando's face in this episode for the first time. Again, a thing that we've been wondering about and predicting would happen at some point. And while it's reasonable to assume that this would be so, given that it's Pedro Pascal playing the role, you want to see his face. You wouldn't cast Pedro Pascal if you're not going to show it. And B, the child we see in Mando's flashbacks looks like a human and not some kind of sentient alien. Mm -hmm. There are no noble scars, no tats or other distinctions. When IG-11 removes his helmet, it's, you know, obviously very different, but kind of like the moment in, in Jedi when Luke takes off Darth's helmet. It's just a guy. It's just a man, Mm -hmm. a vulnerable, injured man with hideous helmet hair. (laughs) (laughs) And this is important because of the contrast it strikes between Mando, a man in a suit of armor, and little baby Yoda. Baby Yoda's, his force powers (laughs) continue to reveal themselves. He's continuing to progress with being able to use them at the right times. In this episode, his really Kanan Jaren esque. Oh my God. I thought of Kanan immediately, yeah, didn't you? Truly cinematic, oh. awe inspiring, fire repelling force moment, an act that saves his entire chosen family from imminent barbecuing and leads him <laughs> to an immediate other nap. Precious little baby boy. <laughs> It is absolutely, he's honestly, (laughs) so many cute shots of him. Mando has dedicated his life to this code, the creed of the Mandalorian way, but he's just a person trying to uphold that word, you know, against all odds through sheer force of will. Yes. Baby Yoda doesn't have that yet. Doesn't have a way, the way maybe he will, perhaps in time. Mm -hmm. He's learning every day, growing every day, exposed very unfortunately, to new kinds of violence every day. Troubling. But also new connections, creating new connections to new loves. And that was really one of the great things about this episode, that he and Mando are a clan, as the armor says. And that more than that, 
it's recognized by the other characters in this story. It's not just a thing that exists between them and the audience. It's a thing that other people within the story recognize and respect. Yes, absolutely. And we learn quite a bit in this episode about about that, about what that idea of Mandalorian kinship means to the people who abide by it and to the people who observe it. And we finally see that full flashback and realize that a Mandalorian saved him when he was a child from that B2 that was bearing down on him. And specifically, it appears that Death Watch saved him, judging by that Mm -hmm. signature blue armor, the Clan Visla emblem on the arm. We're going to talk about that emblem specifically more in the eight. Mando, we learned, did not grow up on Mandalore. We don't know his home planet yet. Presumably, we will find that out in time. But as we have known, and now all of these specific details are crystallizing around this, he was brought in, raised as a foundling. And he says, when I came of age, I was sworn to the creed. So this is all of this collectively, even though we knew a lot of this and had inferred much of it. It's pretty massive reveal when taken in its totality. You know, we talked about Death Watch before, and we're going to talk about it more today in the Jedi Temple when Jason dives into the history of Dark Saber. But this group was an anti-pacifist group at first. In its mind, freedom fighting, but in the, the eyes of many others was a terrorist organization. So yes. your first question when you see this is, did terrorists raise Mando? It's but a fine question to you ask. Have, you have some timeline thoughts here. Right. There's been some theorizing online. Uh, the appearance of HMP droid gunships in the flashback scene, people on Reddit and elsewhere have noted that those appeared very late in the war, last year of the Clone Wars. And that would be about the same time as when Maul uh-huh. killed Pre Vizsla in single combat, took control of the Darksaber, took control of Death Watch, and then Bo Katan Kreese, the Duchess Satine's sister, led yes. a group of Mandalorian Death Watch followers to break away because they didn't believe that Maul a non-Mandalorian, had the right to lead Mandalorian. So it is possible that Mando was raised by this splinter group led by Bo-Katan. And Bo-Katan, obviously, a wielder of the Darksaber. Mm -hmm. That would make the Darksaber in the hands of someone else, and specifically Moff Gideon. It has a lot of tragic undertones and a lot of little strings that are just waiting to be tied together. It's really fascinating. But again... It is possible that Mando was raised not by Death Watch, which I think it's fair to call them a terrorist organization. Listen, they were Mm -hmm. setting off bombs in the capital city of Mandalore. They were, like, Mm -hmm. threatening to wipe out villagers at one time because the villagers wouldn't give up the daughters of the village to be used as slaves. Like, they were bad. It's possible that he was raised by this splinter organization led by Bo-Katan that was certainly more heroic. Yeah, that would feel right and make yeah. more sense, I think. But yeah. we'll, we'll eagerly await details and find out. Regardless of exactly where in time and exactly which version of Death Watch, how much of his identity formed from being raised by those members of Death Watch, how much of it is inspired by the specific creed of the way that we obviously know he hews to, but which we still think sprung up later in time. You know, in canon, we still have not learn details of the Great Purge, seeing the Great Purge. We still think that it's most likely that the way is a response to that since we haven't seen it in pre-existing canon, you know, in Rebels or elsewhere. Regardless, though, as you were saying, 
whether it's Previsla, whether it's Bo-Katan, whether it's any time in Death Watch or really any clan of Mandalore, he would know what Darksaber yes, was. He would know. He it. would know. He would know it. And think about think about the response to just the Beskar. And I don't say just to, to minimize it. Beskar is incredibly important to Mandalorians. But seeing that in the hands of somebody who they didn't think had a right to it, the client in that case, made their blood boil, caused Paz and Manda yes. to put blades at each other's throats. Yes. So this will be true of Darksaber, but magnifold. A hundred percent, yes. Up that conflict between Mando and Gideon, and the prospect of Mando eventually wielding it is really, really I riveting. Know. But all of this does raise another question. Think about the armorer's comments to Mando in teaching him about Baby Yoda, about the history between Mandalore and the Jedi. Death Watch yes. directly warred with the Jedi during the events of the Clone Wars. It is, again, specific time frame almost aside here, it is exceedingly odd. Exceedingly odd. Even even odder than we previously thought that Mando does not know what the Force is and hasn't heard of the Jedi. He would have been raised by people who were battling them directly or had witnessed others battle them directly. It's a great point. Very strange. The Mandalorian's armor was designed, a lot of the Mm -hmm. details in their armor were designed specifically to combat Jedi. I'm thinking specifically of a moment from... Season three of Rebels, when Fen Rao, Mandalorian Fen Rao, gifts uh, Sabine Wren a pair of Mandalorian van braces that were specifically designed for fighting Jedi and have like these little force field generators and an energy lasso and different things you would use to specifically counter force wielders. So it's still confusing that someone so enmeshed in the Mandalorian culture, so steeped yeah. in it would be confused about what the Force is and wouldn't understand it and wouldn't even know the word for Jedi. Right. Like, wouldn't say strange. the Jedi. Strange. It's very strange. <laughs> um, our Mandalorian history lesson didn't end there in this episode, nor did our understanding of the history that shapes Mando's view of what family means. Gideon's speech hinges on the shattering impact of the Siege of Mandalore and what we now know is called the Night of a Thousand Tears. Yes. But to be clear... These events refer to the horrors of 19 BBY during the Clone Wars long before this show. This Uh is a separate conflict, seemingly, from the mysterious Purge, which must follow Uh the events of Season 4 of Rebels and seem likely to also now coincide with how Gideon got Darksaber. So it simply must coincide with that. Pass. Yes. And what's more, crucially, this episode stresses that being a Mandalorian means not being part of a specific species or race, but following a creed. At least this is the case now, more proof of the evolving nature of this culture following the Great mm-hmm. Purge. And we learn about the creed's prominence fittingly with a one-two punch from Kara and Din cementing their bond and connection and shared understanding, even though it's not a creed that Kara follows. She's a warrior and therefore she gets it. Yes. While the creed's response to war and violence is disheartening. There is something kind of buoying about this idea. You swear an oath to join a family, meaning you choose it, and it chooses you. It's not a matter of your race or your species, as you said, or the planet where you were born. It's about what you believe in and who you want to fight beside. And we're reminded in this episode 
of the sometimes tragic cost of that level of devotion. You know, Paz told Mando and us in Chapter 3 that the covert had to live underground like rats, he said, only able to surface one at a time. But they still rose en masse to fight for Mando and his foundling. And here we see the price that they paid for it. Nearly wiped out, decimated. The armorer lives and perhaps some others. You know, yeah. surely the the some may have escaped off-world comment from the armorer is there as a almost promise to us that the show will fulfill in the future. Yeah. And of course, we still don't know before this slaughter how many other Mandalorians, how many other subscribers to the Creed maybe existed across the mm-hmm. galaxy. You know, was this it? Are there others? That remains an open question. But regardless, the sight of that heap of Mandalorian armor is devastating to see this proud, proud culture. Didn't always make the right choices, but this proud culture nonetheless reduced to a literal pile in the dirt underground. And they got to that place because they died to protect one of their own, even though Mando was a foundling. And that reinforces so powerfully the sanctity of a bond that you choose, even absent really any sincere affection. You know, think again of the interactions between Mando and Paz. It's not like these guys are buddies. They didn't like each other at all. No, and even amid the hard circumstances. I I do have one question, though. Why didn't the covert move after saying that it was going to? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. I, I feel like I must be missing something here, but Mando and Paz have that exchange at the end of chapter three about how they'll have to move the covert. And then when they're looking for the covert here, Mando thinks he knows exactly where to go when they're in the source. Like, of course, they're trying to find their map, but he he knows basically that he's trying to find the prior location, right. which doesn't make sense because he should think that they have moved. And then he's ultimately proven right, which makes even less sense. You know, why would they have still been there? That it's is a- confusing. It's a great question. I, you know, Mando, I guess I could explain Mando taking them there as just being an act of desperation, not having any other idea of what to do and just thinking, okay, here's a shot in the dark. Maybe they're still there. The question as to why they were there in the first place long enough to be attacked by what surely must have been legions of stormtroopers is confounding. I mean, they had shown themselves to the world, gunned down dozens of of bounty hunters in a massive gun battle in the middle of town, flying in the air with their jetpacks, after that, it's time to go. Right. So why do they stick around? It's a great question. I don't get it. Yeah. Unless they have a Karga-esque level of affection for Navarro, it's deeply <laughs> puzzling. <laughs> but ultimately, they're not fully, fully, yeah. fully gone yet. There's Mando, there's the Armorer, and there's a new member now, folks. Though Baby Yoda does not actually take the oath. He's not of age, as we hear. He has not sworn to uphold the way. He's brought in to the way of life, into the family, into the tribe right here in this episode by Mando's Mm -hmm. creed and Mando's devotion. A relationship that Mando and Yodes have both chosen, episode after episode, moment after moment, reinforced, formalized here. A foundling is in your care, the armorer says, by creed until it is of age or reunited with its own kind. You are as its father. This is the way. It's so great. I also just love the line reading here that the armor gives because as we've talked about many times over the course of this series while discussing this show, Mando is a little thick, little slow Mm -hmm. on the uptake. So the armor is really walking him through it point by point when he's like, wait a second, I gotta take I, I gotta take him back to his planet. I don't even know where the planet is. And she's like, yeah, 
this is the way, you know, like this is the creed. This is what you promise to do. This is the life we lead. Yes, you have to do that. It's such an effective way of conveying what fatherhood or family in any capacity really is. You know, again, it is not a matter of what your name is. It's not a matter of sharing blood with somebody. It's being willing to do exactly what she is asking of Mando here and what he, again, has already been doing but maybe hasn't properly understood or internalized. Mm -hmm. Just deciding every day that you're going to work to keep this other person safe. (laughs) And she... She solidifies this for them and for us by giving Mando that Mudhorn signet, the one that he refused in Chapter 3. And the reason is so wondrous. He refused it back then, remember, because he said an enemy helped him defeat the beast. And now it's clear, of course, that they're not only not enemies, they're allies. They are bonded as a unit. They fought and conquered the Mudhorn together. They earned that signet together. You are a clan of two. So wonderful. Yeah, I loved it. I don't know. Like, I don't think that there's any connection, but the way the mud horn is shaped, it looks like the etchings that are on Kanan's visor, the kind of like eyebrow etchings like on his visor. If you flipped it upside down, that's what it reminded me of. I thought it was nice. Passing on the creed, honoring the way now rests on Mando's shoulders. And little baby Yona, who in one of the truly most incredibly darling and sweet (laughs) moments of this episode. So good. As we realize that he is wearing and sucking on, teething on the mythosaur skull pendant that Mando had worn on his armor and tried to give to Kara, we see him chewing on it and Mando's like, you know what? You can keep that. Yeah. It was so So great. And we spoke about this symbol's significance to the Mandalorians in an earlier episode. The visual resonance is just incredibly powerful here. Baby Yoda holding this symbol of his chosen family, the chosen bond that Mando has sworn his life to Mando's chosen family, in a sense, his extended family before little baby Yoda even entered his life, that life which little baby Yoda has now joined. And I got to say, I've never... Listen, a danger to little baby Yoda, as we have noted previously, is an important engine to this show. I've never felt more secure and safe about little baby Yoda ever in this series. Mando, for one, gets it. And two, mm-hmm. you know, the glee, listen, this raises other questions, but the glee with which little baby Yoda rode in the sack on the chest of IG as he raced <gasps> through town shows yeah. that, like, he's kind of got a taste for adventure now. He kind of likes it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I've just, I've never felt better about him. I've never felt better about him. You're absolutely right. He's like the kids in Up. Yeah. Looking for the spirit of adventure. It's a great one. There is, of course, another very powerful image in the episode that unites Mando and Baby Yoda as foundlings brought into this Mm. Mandalorian way when Mando flies off with Baby Yoda near the end of the episode using the jetpack, the Rising Phoenix, to carry the foundling in his arms, just as, of course, the Mandalorian who rescued Din as a boy flew off into the air with Din in his arms after that rescue. And the foundling parallels between Mando and Baby Yoda have been clear the entire time. That's why Mando was drawn to protecting him in the first place, almost instinctually. With moments like this, though, and the the moment with sucking on the the Mythosaur skull, the Signet, the Clan of Two line, it is all powerfully, powerfully reinforced. Baby Yoda is as one with Mando. He is a member of his family and his tribe, and this is his induction. 
Of course, this episode and the season two setup hinges in part on the promise of Mando getting little baby Yoda back to his people, his species, his planet. You wish me to train this thing? It is too weak. It would die. Terrible. Not true. Probably not you. Probably not true, but I'm glad that somebody is taking the care of this infant seriously for once and that there are people sure. finally talking sense to Mando. Yes. That's true. However, I don't want anyone to talk about Baby Yoda dying. Ever, and I don't ever want again. To doubt never. Him. You have no choice. You must reunite it with its kind. And he says, where? This you must determine. Again, I love the way she just walks him through this like <gasps> yeah. he's an idiot. Yes, well, listen to this next line. <laughs> yeah, you expect me to search the galaxy for the home of this creature and deliver it to a race of enemy sorcerers. <laughs> this is the way. In other words, yeah. So good. What did oh you think God. that you agreed to do when you joined us? You know, A race of enemy sorcerers is real, like, Mando emerging from, like, Kimmy Schmidt levels of <laughs> seclusion from the rest of the universe. Absolutely. I mean, it's a great point. This is a guy who's been just on his own for years and years and years. And clearly when he was a member of a team, as we saw with members of his former gang, it didn't go great. He went his own way even then, never went back for anybody. He was fully ready to cut bait at any given time. And here he is now finally understanding after it's being impressed on him by various people in his life that the needs of this other being come first. It's an adjustment for him. Yes, I think because of that, though, it's hard to actually imagine, even if they find the planet, him handing Baby Yoda over or Baby Yoda wanting to leave. You know, perhaps pursuing a life apart will actually reinforce for them mm. that they want to be together? We don't know. But Mando is, in essence, right now following a, a mission from the armor, from the very essence of the code. But they're together because they they chose to be, not because of anything anybody else is telling them. Yeah. And so while you're right that she is guiding him, it's ultimately their decision whether they want to stay together or at some point move apart. They're currently on a path where his principles align with the fact that they want to be together. We'll point. see where that goes. And, you know, the question of where home for Baby Yoda is, is something that seems likely to dominate season two. You know, how much are we going to learn about Baby Yoda and Yoda's species, you know, we learned some here with armor telling us about the the ancient band of wizards, the Jedi who warred with Mandalore. The songs of Eon's past tell of battles between Mandalore the Great and an order of sorcerers called Jedi that fought with such powers. Again, we've talked about this a lot throughout the course of the season. This is preciously guarded by George yeah. Lucas for decades, information about Absolutely. Yoda's species. How much of it are we going to finally get? It's an amazing thing to think about. Everything we get is massive. Actually seeing the home world potentially would be colossal. Colossal. Yes. Regardless, though, the key to season two, it seems already, is that Manda will be looking not to avoid something, you know, not to run from harm or try to evade some new pursuer. Going to be looking for something, working towards something, an active role instead of a passive one. And that's going to be an interesting shift. And he's going to be doing it, of course, with Baby Yoda in their clan of two. Take care of this little one, Kara says. Or maybe, Cargo replies, it'll take care of you. So wonderful. He gets sincere when he's shit-faced drunk on Spock. (laughs) I wonder what Cargo's hangover cure is. More Spotchka, probably. (laughs) Care of the dog. Jason? Yes. 
your astute panic suggests that you understand your situation. I would prefer to avoid any further violence and encourage a moment of consideration. So please use that moment of consideration to gather the Padawan learners and head to the Jedi Temple. Teach us everything we need to know about the Dark Saber. This episode contains several startling reveals and perhaps none more jaw-dropping than the surprising, shocking even, emergence of the legendary Darksaber. Like the Elder Wand in Harry Potter, Darksaber passes from the hands of the defeated to those of the victor and thus has a long and bloody history. The weapon was crafted by Tari Visla, the first Mandalorian to join the Jedi Order and eventually the ruler of Mandalore more than a thousand years before the events of the show. It is shorter than a standard lightsaber with a flatter blade, and the blade has a slight curve, much like a samurai sword. The weapon is unique. As far as we know, it is the only black-bladed lightsaber in existence. The ancient weapon is also heavy, perhaps heavier than modern lightsabers, though as its connection to its wheeler intensifies, the blade feels lighter. The weapon would become the symbol of Tari's house, Clan Visla. After Visla died, his weapon was kept in the Jedi Temple on Coruscant. Sometime later, during the last days of the Old Republic, the Vislas raided the Jedi Temple and escaped with Darksaber. With the symbol of their greatness back in Visla hands and at the expense of the Jedi, Clan Visla became the most powerful and esteemed faction on Mandalore and leaders on the planet. However, Clan Visla's preeminence would not last. The Mandalorians are a warrior culture. And as we talked about in the uh, chapter one episode, years of endless conflict took a devastating mm-hmm. toll on Mandalore. By the time of the Clone Wars, the surface of Mandalore had been scoured clean, her environment devastated. The surviving population lived in domed cities like the capital Sundari, an oasis of life in a dead world. Many Mandalorians had wearied of warfare. A new pacifist political movement called the New Mandalorians under the leadership of the Duchess Satine Kreese rose up. And after a brutal civil war, the New Mandalorians took control of the system. Clan Visla and the other hardliners were exiled to the moon of Concordia. Clan Visla's leader during this time and the wielder of the Darksaber was pre-Visla, voiced by Jon Favreau, then the governor of Concordia. Outraged by the direction of the New Mandalorian regime, pre-founded the terrorist group Death Watch. The organization was dedicated to fomenting chaos on Mandalore and undermining Duchess Satine's government. The eventual goal, of course, was to seize control and return Mandalore to its ancient warring ways. To further this, pre-allied with a great guy, Darth Maul. The Dathomirian's criminal underlings launched simultaneous attacks on Mandalore. Death Watch used these as a pretext to launch a coup, arguing that, hey, Satine's government can no longer maintain law and order. Prenamed himself prime minister and immediately turned on Darth Maul. Maul would escape imprisonment, <laughs> return to challenge Visla in single combat, in which he slew pre-Visla. Thus did the leadership of Death Watch and the ownership of the Darksaber change hands to Maul. After consolidating his control over Mandalore through his cat's paw, Prime Minister Almec, Maul murdered the Duchess Satine with the Darksaber as her mm. former lover, Obi-Wan Kenobi, looked on helpless. Terribly sad. Very, Terribly very, sad. Very, very, very tough. That night, Obi-Wan was freed by Bo-Katan Kreese, the late Duchess's sister. Bo-Katan would go on to lead an offshoot of Death Watch made up of warriors who refused to acknowledge Darth Maul's authority. Meanwhile, on Coruscant, 
Darth's former master, Darth Sidious, a.k.a. Supreme Chancellor Sheev Palpy Palpatine, sensed that Maul, who he thought perished after the events of The Phantom Menace, had indeed survived and now was a threat to him. He flies to Mandalore to confront Maul. Palpatine finds Darth Maul and his brother and aide-de-camp Savage Opress there. The burgeoning crime lord and the new ruler of Mandalore tries to play off his recent accomplishments, telling Sheev that, hey, everything I've been doing is in hopes of returning to your service and being worthy of you. And Palpy's like, yeah, whatever. Let's fight. He attacks the brothers. <gasps> Palpy is, of course, more than a match for the Dathomirians. He knocks Maul senseless and slays Savage. Enraged, Maul draws the Darksaber and his own lightsaber and lays into Palpatine with the two blades. Maul does slightly better the second time, but the duel is just as brief. Palpatine defeats Maul, tortures him with force lightning, and then imprisons him on Stygian Prime for some further torturing at his own hands and the hands of Count Dooku. Though the victor, Palpy actually never obtained the Darksaber. Mandalorian warriors loyal to Maul, backed by his shadow collective gangsters, freed Darth from Stygian and spirited him to a secret staging area on the Swamp Moon Zanbar. There, Maul made contact with Prime Minister Almec, who told him that the Darksaber had been recovered after his capture by Palpy. Apparently, the Sith Lord had no interest in the weapon. Maul would go on to wield the Mandalorian Darksaber in many battles against clone troopers, General Grievous, Sayla Sakura, Mace Windu, and others. Maul later captures Count Dooku and brings him to Dathomir, intent on sacrificing the Sith apprentice of Darth Sidious in order to return his mother, Talzin, back to life, which is a long story we won't get into right now. (laughs) The ritual works, and Talzin regains her body. However, the arrival of Palpy and General Grievous breaks up the reunion party. Mal, uh, Mal, How dare you? Sorry. Darth Maul. Incredibly rude Freudian slip. I'm sorry. Darth Maul (laughs) with the Darksaber and his mother fight side by side, but eventually Palpy and a revived Dooku overpower Talzin. He uses the last of her strength to shield Maul from harm. He is finally dragged away from the planet by his loyal Mandalorian commandos as his mother is struck down by General Grievous. Maul escaped to fight in another day, but the Darksaber remained on Dathomir, which is where, years later during the Imperial Era, Sabine Wren, the colorful Mandalorian crew member of the Spectres, the soul of a graffiti artist, finds it in Season 3 of Star Wars Rebels. House Wren is one of the vassal houses of Clan Visla, and Sabine recognizes the blade, is familiar with its lore. Realizing the responsibility that would come with a member of House Visla wielding this weapon and conflicted by her own complex personal history with her people and also distrustful of the weapon's violent history, she passes it to her teammate, the Jedi, Kanan Jarrus. Yes. Kanan later shows it to the Mandalorian warrior, Fen Rao, who once fought alongside the Jedi and the Republic and now travels as a member of the Spectres. Rao suggests that Ren wield the saber, unite the powerful House Visla under her leadership, and thus bring powerful allies to their side. Her teammates, Harrison Dula, Kanan, Ezra Bridger, and Zeb, urge her to take up the blade. She reluctantly agrees. Kanan and Ezra train Sabine in isolation using wooden sparring sabers, and it is very slow going to keep her spirits up and remind her of the important heritage of the Darksaber and her mission. Rao gifts Sabine a pair of Mandalorian Vambraces, which are 
as we discussed earlier, gauntlets designed specifically for fighting Jedi. However, Sabine is just too headstrong for Kanan's training. And eventually, after yet another blow up at the urging of Hera, who thinks Sabine can rise to the responsibility, Kanan gives Sabine the Darksaber to wield. She says, it's heavier than I thought. Energy constantly flows through the crystal, Kanan says. You're not fighting with a simple blade as much as you're directing a current of power. Your thoughts, your actions, they become energy. They flow through the crystal as well and become part of the blade. In the cathartic and extremely dangerous sparring session that follows this, Sabine reveals her complicated feelings towards her people, as well as her guilt for building weapons that would be used by the Empire to go on to enslave the Mandalorian people. Sabine, Kanan, Ezra, Chopper, and Rao then travel to Cronus, the icy homeworld of Clan Wren, to recruit Sabine's kin. The Wrens serve the Empire nowadays, and her brother wears an imperial insignia on his Mandalorian armor. Sabine's status as a fugitive, a traitor in the eyes of many Mandalorians, makes for a very hostile welcome. And her mother, Countess Ursa, has Kanan and Ezra turned over to Gar Saxon, an ex-Maul associate and the current Mandalorian imperial governor, as a show of loyalty. Ursa also gives Saxon the Darksaber. But when Saxon betrays Ursa and House Wren, a fight breaks out. And Sabine, using Ezra's lightsaber, Saxon using the darksaber, engage in single combat. She defeats him, but it's Ursa who kills Saxon when he attempts to shoot Sabine in the back after Sabine spares his life. Nice fucking guy. Sabine (laughs) decides to stay with her family to help defend them against the Empire's wrath. When Rao insists that she could unite and lead the Mandalorians, Sabine, now confident in this feeling, declines, saying, Quote, this was about my family. I'm not Mandalore's leader, but I'll find the person who is. That person, it turned out, was Bo Katan Kreese, the late Duchess Satine's sister. By season four of Rebels, Sabine has passed the Darksaber to Bo Katan in an emotional moment that's really hits in this episode. Yeah. Clan Vistula, Clan Rook, Clan Elder, Clan Kreese, Clan Ren, and Finrau pledge their support to Bo, and she says, I accept this sword for my sister, for my clan, and for all of Mandalore. And then she ignites the blade and they drop to their knees. However, as we can intuit from the Mandalorian, things must not have gone well for Bo-Katan. By the time of the Mandalorian, some nine years after the Battle of Yavin, Mandalorians have been driven to the edge of extinction by the still mysterious event known as the Great Purge. Seems reasonable to assume that since Moff Gideon, a former member of the feared ISB and a known war criminal, is in possession of the Darksaber, he may have played an active role in the purge. How else would he have Mm -hmm. come into ownership of this weapon? Unfortunately, it also stands to reason that Bo-Katan would certainly never willingly pass this weapon to a non-Mandalorian. Never, ever, ever. Which leads us to believe that it's quite possible that she is deceased. Very unfortunate. Upsetting. Upsetting to think about. It's hard to come to any other conclusions. Yeah. Though similar to how hearing Ahsoka as one of the voices Rey hears in The Rise of Skywalker when she calls all of the Jedi to be with her, seemingly confirmed Ahsoka's death. The thing I'm holding on to is that it's hard to believe that two major character deaths would be confirmed in that way in other stories. Yeah. And, you know, then when you take the Dave Filoni tweet and Instagram with the drawing right, of Ahsoka, Gandalf yeah. and Ahsoka, and, you know, they yeah, thought yeah. I was dead too. Like, I'm holding on to some glimmer of hope that there may be some other explanation, though I I agree fully that there is no way There's she no would have willingly, Absolutely willingly not. passed control. Absolutely so something not. terrible. Something bad happened. Mal? Yeah. Let's make the baby do the magic nugget thing. Come on, baby. Do the magic nugget thing. 
Let's roll like BB-8 through eight of our favorite insights and observations from this episode. Lightning round style, you go first. Number one, in addition to learning that Moff Gideon wields the dark saber, we also learn, as we've said, that he was part of the Imperial Security Bureau, Permando. Quote, Moff Gideon was an ISB officer during the purge. So there you go, direct connection to Gideon and the purge timing. This is alarming and extremely menacing because... The ISB was, in essence, the Empire's Gestapo, KGB, Palpatine's secret police, a key intelligence arm of the Imperial apparatus. The law enforcement agency fell under the Commission for the Preservation of the New Order, but carved out its own really terrifying reputation across the galaxy as Palpatine himself designed the branch to sniff out enemy combatants who threatened his rule. One area of emphasis for the ISB? Loyalty purges. A great purge connection clue here? Perhaps it seems distinctly possible. The New Republic targeted the ISB after the Battle of Endor and was very right to ID it as a crucial branch because the ISB had details of Palpatine's contingency plan, which we've talked about before, on its black site on Tehran. New Republic-supported resistance fighters also battled the ISB for control on Coruscant, crucial location, of course, The ISB branch had, in essence, vanished by 28 ABY, though it later returned, in a fashion at least, under the First Order as the Security Bureau. Notably, powerful ISB figures commanded stormtrooper squads, which helps to explain Gideon's deployment of storm, scout, death, and other forms of troopers here on Navarro. The ISB's expertise in surveillance also helps to address some prior questions that we'd had, including how Gideon's troopers had been able to monitor Mando's comlink. Alarmingly, one of the areas of emphasis was also advanced weapons research. And given Gideon's possession of the Darksaber, his loving description of the E-Web cannon, his deployment of incinerator troopers, and more, what horrors, we have to ask, might await in season two. I am growing increasingly concerned about the return of an arc pulse generator. That's Uh, my big fear at the moment. It's my worry. Number two. Speaking of that E-Web cannon, Gideon's boasts were not unfounded, as the E-Web, short for emplacement weapon, heavy repeating blaster cannon, is the most powerful weapon of its type in the Imperial rotation. We first saw the weapon in Empire Strikes Back, deployed by snow troopers on Hoth in an effort to prevent the Millennium Falcon from departing Echo Base. And we've seen it across the saga since, including in Rebels and Battlefront and Battlefront 2. Typically, the weapon requires two to wield it, making Mando's solo effort pretty astonishing, though not unheard of, and Mm -hmm. also perhaps helps to explain his ultimate vulnerability as no one was with him to watch the generator. The E-Web may not look anything like a crossbow, but it has one similar drawback. It takes too long to learn! (laughs) As we saw in this episode of The Mandalorian, the setup is involved, giving the opponent time to escape or account for what awaits. Generated itself presents something of a mini Death Star or Starkiller problem. From its base stagnant state, it took 15 minutes to power up, according to the Imperial Sourcebook. Way too long, folks. Though the Blastec Industries product doesn't (laughs) offer much precision either, it does offer power. Raw Mm. and savage power, making its freaking appearance in toy setting slightly disconcerting, but alas, (laughs) welcome to the world of merchandising. Our friends were lucky to escape the E-Web alive. Truly. Number three. The E-Web was not, of course... Gideon's only weapon, he also loosed incinerator troopers and in so doing, brought 
this trooper type from Legends into official canon. Incinerator troopers were first introduced in the 2008 video game Star Wars The Force Unleashed, in which their goodies and village-burning evil could be unlocked using the code Phoenix, which is fitting given their association with fire, but also kind of bleak. In addition to the usual arsenal of blasters and detonators, they carry mortar launchers and flamethrowers, troopers after Mando's own fire-launching heart. In the Force Unleashed commemorative collection, we learn that these clones were actually bred to crave fire-centric destruction. And their havoc, interestingly, was not unsupervised. When Palpatine really wanted to make a point, he often sent incinerator troopers out into the field alongside Darth Vader. Ever heard of him? (laughs) Incinerator troopers are, crucially, not the same as the First Order's flame troopers. The incinerator troopers have signature red markings and a pauldron on their white armor, which indicates their area of specialization. But that armor doesn't just look cool and distinct. It's also designed to hold up to the heat caused by their carnage, though that did not help against Baby Yoda. Of course not. Number four. Speaking of phoenixes, before gifting Mando with Chekhov's jetpack, which most viewers have been confident he'd acquire since his quite lustful remark, gotta get one of those, the end of chapter three, the armor called it the Rising Phoenix, asking, quote, have you been trained in the Rising Phoenix? This is the second notable jetpack appearance in a week for the Star Wars universe following the, they fly now? They fly now, exchange on Pasana and Rise of Skywalker. While that Rise action sequence was visually pleasing, the dialogue was a bit puzzling given the long-running role jetpacks have played in Star Wars, including by clone troopers, the stormtrooper predecessor during the Clone Wars. Jetpacks appear often throughout the canon, including in the Star Wars TV landscape on both Clone Wars and Rebels. Interestingly, there are a link between troopers and Mandalorian Wars as both bands utilize them, including Death Watch, as we saw in this episode. Mm-hmm. They're also, of course, associated with two famous Mandalorian armor wearers, albeit not actual Mandalorians, bounty hunters Django and his quote-unquote son, Clone Son, Boba Fett, the latter of whom <laughs> gave jetpacks a bad name when Han just activated it by accident, sending <laughs> Boba spiraling into the Sarlacc uh. pit. After really a tough look for Boba. After a face-first impact on the side of Jabba's pleasure barge. As we've discussed before, though, Boba emerged from that hell in Legends, thanks to the very same jetpack, helping to reinforce the validity of the Rising Phoenix's name, as Boba was quite literally risen from death in this case. We know of three canonical jetpack types, JT-12, Rocket, and Z-6, the Z-6 being the type the Fets and Death Watch preferred. We also, of course, know the risk intertwined with the reward. While jetpacks look pretty fucking dope and facilitate mm-hmm. flight, they're temperamental and extremely dangerous. One hit from your enemy, as we saw in Return of the Jedi, and you fall out of the sky <laughs> or explode. As the armorer told Mando, training was key, though different users preferred different methods of control, with some opting for wrist comms and others opting for visor or verbal-based controls. Do the magic wrist thing, Mando. I can't wait for Omero to say that to him one day for entirely different reasons. Yikes. Number five. (laughs) The jetpack is not the only signature aspect of Death Watch's look. Their trademark blue armor also features the emblem of Clan Vizsla, which became the emblem of Death Watch itself under Pre's rule. It is the Shriekhawk, a predatory carnivorous bird that called Mandalore home. The creature's name stems from its shriek-like cry. And the Clan Vizsla emblem depicts the bird revered by the Mandalorian people for its warrior-like hunting abilities in pursuit of its prey. 
Its shape also made it onto Mandalorian armor in the form of J-Guys, a sigil denoting bravery and honor that would typically adorn a Mandalorian helmet above the eye slits. Shriekhawks, like Mandalorians, possessed an almost obsessive desire to defend their nest, their home, their covert. Sadly, also like the Mandalorians, the Shriekhawks were not always able to defend their homes as they would have wanted, as the savage wars between the Galactic Republic and Mandalore hundreds and hundreds of years before the events of this show, which turned wide swaths of the planet into these desert-like wastelands and drove the planet's inhabitants beneath protective domes, led the Shriekhawks to become extinct in those areas. Thankfully, the bird survives elsewhere. Number six, how about a different kind of predator? If you were able to shift your attention away from the atrocities being committed against LBY for even a moment, Mm. you might have found yourself thinking of Tag and Bink, the high comedy Rosencrantz and Guildenstern-inspired comic book would-be Jedi duo that finds itself time and again involved in events that shape galactic history. At one point in Tag and Bink are dead, an absolute Rosencrantz and Guildenstern dead nod. Mm-hmm. The titular characters dress up as stormtroopers and wind up flying alongside Vader as he attempts to protect the Desawat. Delightfully, a fan theory that Tag and Bink are stormtroopers who back away in alarm as Kylo Ren unleashes his fury on another control deck in The Force Awakens sprung up in the wake of the film. Perhaps these scout troopers were Tag and Bink as well, or at least inspired by their slightly out-of-place energy. Number seven. Perhaps we could find out for sure if we had a mind flare. As our pals are trying to strategize their escape from the cantina early in the episode, Kara says, I'm a rebel shock trooper. They'll upload me to a mind flare. To which Cargo replies, those aren't real. That was just wartime propaganda. Kara says that she doesn't care to find out, but this is binge mode, so that's not our instinct. What are mind flares? Are they real? Well, they certainly are in Dungeons & Dragons and the D&D-infused Stranger Things, which names its primary villain after the D&D terror. But what's a mind flare in Star Wars lore? While nothing in Star Wars canon or Legends canon currently bears that name, we, like many other fans in the wake of this episode, are wondering if this could be about thought-reading Marins, also known as Boars, a.k.a. Borgullet and his kin. Borgullet! <laughs> Lies? Lies? Deception? Deception! Or maybe it's the truth. As we saw in Rogue One, the boars can be deployed to penetrate the mind with frightening mm. effect. Recall Saw's promise to Bodhi. Bogle, can you feel your thoughts? No lies, safe. As we discussed in our Rogue One podcast, Saw's partisans weren't the only group who employed boars, though. The Galactic Empire did as well. Keeping three boars in ice, weird and mean. Yeah, mean. And defrosting them when they needed to interrogate prisoners by reading their minds and pushing their mental sanctity. Given that the D&D namesake, also called in Dungeons & Dragons the Alethid, is a creature with tentacles on its face, our credits here, our Mm. money, our credits are on the boar. But there are definitely other possibilities, as Kara's use of the word upload indicates the potential, at least, for some sort of droid-driven mind probing. And as we know from Kylo's interrogation of Poe and Rey, among other examples, this could also refer to a Force user who's able to penetrate its queries' thoughts. While it is possible that the Mind Flayer was, in fact, just a whisper, just Imperial propaganda, we have ample evidence to indicate that the legend could have sprung up around actual practices, and maybe even more than one. Protect Kara's mind from flaying at all costs. Number eight. One way to protect the brain, if not the mind, back to spray, baby, which IG-11 doused Mando with in order to heal his potentially mortal wounds. 
We've talked about Back to Tanks many times when discussing Luke's dip in Empire, Invader's restorative baths in Rogue One, and even Back to Suits when admiring Finn's leaking plastic suit in The Last Jedi. But given the amount of attention being paid in recent days to the role of Force healing in both Mando Chapter 7 and The Rise of Skywalker, we should pause for a moment to marvel at the role Back to plays here and across the canon. While it's not actually a Jedi-level power, it's basically the Star Wars version of Tebow Light, a super healing substance in a form available to all. Bacta is a gelatinous salve bred by mixing two types of bacteria with ambori fluid. It functions by stimulating tissue growth, meaning it can help regenerate skin, muscle, and even nerves. Bacta could be used for anything from a cut to, as we saw in this episode, seemingly life-threatening head injuries. While a tank allowed for a full-body submersion and treatment, a tank wasn't always practical on the run or in the field, making other methods of application imperative. From the spray we see here to the back to patches we see in the Clone Wars. Jason. Yes. I will eliminate the enemy. Good. And you will escape. <laughs> also good. <laughs> I learned how from today's champion. Every episode, we're going to honor the character who rallied the troops advanced cause. And today, the winner of our Medal of Bravery is... IG-11. Oh my God, what an episode for our guy. IG-11 voiced by the great Taika Waititi, who also directed this awesome finale and played IG-11 from start to finish. The restored and reprogrammed hunter turned nurse protector droid. From the moment he emerged from the crest until the moment he self-detonated, IG made a tremendous impact, justly delivering a painful death upon the scout troopers who harmed you. Thank blasting you. Blasting his way through Gideon's troops. Thank you. In town and ultimately sacrificing himself on the lava flats in order to lead Baby Yoda, Mando, Kara, and Grief to safety. In between those ferocious acts of efficient protective violence, IG displayed his newly discovered tender nature, healing Mando mm-hmm. and revealing his face to us for the first time, literally carrying his comrade's weight. Most importantly of all, nurturing little baby Yoda as though he were the most important thing in the world, which he is. He is, folks. He's the only thing keeping us whole and safe and together right now. It's wonderful. IG-11 bettered those around him, surely making Quill proud after Quill's own sacrifice and crucially helping to alter the anti-droid bias that Mando has carried since childhood. You were always alive to us, IG. Always. We have spoken. Well, friends, search the wisdom of your years. Just as we keep telling Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, We hope you had as much fun as we did today that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the speeder, continue to explore the galaxy with us. And you'll join us again next time because Binge Mode Star Wars is not over yet. We will be back next week after the holiday. Until then, remember, watch your feet. It's molten lava. Wow. Mando! 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 I love saying it. I love saying it, Mando. This is a tough spot, but I gotta tell you. But I gotta tell you, I think we're gonna we're gonna make it. Through the sewers! Through the sewers, baby! Let's go! Hey, uh what is the the baby hand thing? Can we talk about it? Let's talk about it. Mando, you okay, buddy? Now look at 
You're not looking great. 